another edition of your favorite podcast out in the universe, Benefits Breakdown. We are excited to get into an amazing discussion today with a very special guest. Uh, my name is Adam Compton here with our teammate, Jared Bocut, to kick off and introduce our special guest, Pete Kranz, today. Hey, everybody. How you doing? We're glad to have Pete here. He is one of the industry-leading experts in captives, which is a big topic that we get asked about all the time. So figure why not bring one of the best out there to our podcast and help you all get a little bit further insight into captives. Pete, uh, welcome. If you want mind giving a brief introduction to our audience out here. Yeah, I appreciate that, uh, both you and Jared. That's that's a big billing to try to live up to. I'm just going to start <laughs> off with that. Um, uh, Pete Kranz, I, I lead the captive practice for Beecher Carlson. We are one of the leading captive management firms in the world. Uh, my background, I'm a CPA, spent 10 years in public accounting. I've been with Beecher uh, for over 16 years now, 40 teammates spread across six offices, um, 135 plus entities that we manage, um, a, a significant number of those having medical stop loss uh, in their captives. We've done a lot of creative and, and interesting things, and, and arguably we're one of the most awarded captive management firms in the world, too. Um, is that enough of a, of a try, try to live up to the introduction? Is that, hey... <laughs> That was amazing. I mean, I was going to make a joke about the CPA, but you did too good in the introduction that I wanted to make <laughs> my CPA joke. But no, thanks, Pete. We're very glad to have you with us. What? And maybe just kick off. Like, I think people hear the word captive, uh, and many just don't know what it is. Many don't know where to go with it. Uh, so maybe we can just baseline that there and just start talking about where we see it. I know you mentioned stop loss, and it gets into the PNC risk side as well. Like, just where are you seeing that, and what's your team working on these days? Yeah. So, so the the First point is an, is an excellent question because there's so much activity in the market. We talked about that in, in, in a few minutes as well. But um, what is a captive? It's your own insurance company. Um, so whether it's you know your organization or uh, with a number of other people kind of joining together, um, it is a licensed, regulated insurance company in the domicile in which it's set up. So uh, when we think about domiciles in the United States, insurance is regulated state to state. So you've got about 30 uh, jurisdictions or states in the U.S. that have captive enabling legislation and have captives. And then you've got offshore, the, the two primary offshore, Bermuda and Cayman. Um, so it, it's really, it's an insurance company set up in that location to ensure the risks of the owners. Is it fair to say they started more on the PNC side and, and kind of shifted into more of the health and welfare space recently? Um, absolutely. So I, I'd say we, we saw... Um, a shift into the, the health and welfare, the benefits, and, and we have to kind of break that down a little bit too. But um, captives, absolutely, since it started in the in the 50s, 60s, uh, really was based in PNC, property and casualty, um, and more casualty. So it was you know taking taking advantage of the long tail line of business, the workers' comp types of things are really sort of the no brainer, the easy things to put into a captive. Um, Definitely uh, a good number of years ago, we saw it on the benefit side. So uh, that started not with the medical stop loss, but with ERISA type benefits, uh, standard, you know, long term disability, short term disability in life, uh, and sort of started through the DOL process, Department of Labor. So you have those ERISA benefits, you need to get them approved, or you need to get a prohibited transaction exemption from the Department of Labor, all that kind of fun stuff. And then it sort of expanded into the medical stop loss. So in the medical stop loss world, since you, if an organization moves, say, from guaranteed cost to self-funded, once you move to self-funded, it becomes a corporate risk and we're not dealing with an ERISA issue. 
So we can do that very much more easily into the captive. If we move into risk of benefits, we have other complexities. Well, I'm just thinking of the, the the kind of the thought process to an employer as they think of that stop loss policy and with the benefits that captive. It sounds like you have the ability to maybe define the plan a bit more, that control, uh, and I'm guessing some cost mechanisms. Like what's the bigger uh, draw to the employer and what are they really seeking when they put that captive in place? Yeah, and it, it, it's a great question. And it, it really depends sort of what your starting point is, right? So if you're in a guaranteed cost plant, then your your structure of your program is a little bit more defined by the, the networks that you're you're buying into, right? Whereas if you move to a self-funded plan, so setting aside the captive for a moment, you move to the self-funded, you can start to define the coverages better and, and actually tailor it more towards your uh, employee base. Then it comes into the financing of that, right? Once you move to self-funded, you're likely to have obviously more volatility than under a guaranteed cost program. So you move into the self-funded, you obviously want to wrap a stop loss around that mm-hmm. so that you can mitigate the volatility. Where the captive comes in is you can take the the base layer of losses, so the really the expected, and that stays in the self-funded plan. You're going to have losses, uh, but they're, they're volatile on a year-to-year basis, and you shift that into your captive and the captive then goes by goes and buys stop loss on an ASD or an individual claimant basis, as well as an aggregated basis, right? So what that does is you're able to capture the profit on that dollar trading piece that might normally go to the stop loss carrier, uh, but you're able to mitigate your downside. So the captive essentially takes the volatility away from the self-funded plan. Ideally, it's going to build up some surplus. So you're going to capture some of the profit you're paying to a carrier. You're going to capture that in the captive. And now when you have, you know, I'll say a little bit more volatile years, it doesn't necessarily hit the self-funded plan directly. It sits in the captive and the captive can manage. So, you know, you might look at, at your structure and say, you know, we, we, we should have had a 3% increase last year or two years ago, 3% last year. And then now we've got a 15%. We need to adjust for that. Well, in your captive, you don't necessarily have to bump it up for the 15%. You might be able to do it for the five or 10 because that profit that's built up over the previous few years is there to absorb some of that in the current year. Obviously, you need to look at trends, right, to see where are we heading. Um, but that's what the captive can help mitigate the big swings back and forth uh, and smooth that out a little bit. You still need to control claims costs in some way, whether it's, you know, reviewing services and or, or treatment plans and those sorts of things, because the captive is not going to drive your claims cost down. So there's still that component, but it's going to help finance and mitigate that volatility. Th- thanks, Pete, because I think that's one of the biggest questions, concerns that we hear out in the marketplace is, okay, I'm a self-funded health plan. I've taken on some risk already. I don't dare take on all of the risk of not having reinsurance. And if I put a captive in, now I have all this risk. But the way you explained of, of having a captive, so the self-funded healthcare plan takes a layer of risk. The captive takes a layer of risk, and then the captive goes out and buys reinsurance. So really, the employer has a layer of risk that is still getting reinsured. Am, yeah. I, am I understanding you correctly? You, you absolutely are, and I think that's you know, that that comes into that question is is you know when should somebody be looking at a captive? What I found for, for there could be you know employers with two thousand employees. And they're buying stop loss that attaches to say $100,000 or $125,000. It's probably too low, right? If you have claims above that, then you want to set up a structure that you can capture the claims because you don't want to dollar trade. Anytime you're dollar trading, you're giving $10 to a carrier, they're giving you $8 back. 
right? For, for losses, you know, you're going to have. So why are we giving them the $2? Hmm. So it's a matter of looking at that structure and saying, okay, how, how, how can we structure this a little bit better through the captive? Now, we've been talking about this sort of in the context of, of single parent captive. We start talking about group captive and pooling other risks together, which is pros and cons, depending on the organization. Um, you're also kind of, once you mix that in, you're, you're increasing your group and you're creating more actuarial credibility, less likelihood of that volatility as well. So, so in a group captive, do you also have a reinsurance layer on top of the captive? You, you absolutely should. So there are a lot of different structures out there. Um, so I, I don't just want go to down a ra- big rabbit hole here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go too far. We're trying to identify every single one. Well, I think based off the intro, uh, one of them was change the world, right? So I think this should be easy to answer, right? You were. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, deep, no, holes, no hole too deep for, for Pete here. Yeah. Uh, but there are, there's, there's, there's a lot of different types of structures out there. So you just have to look and see, see what the right one is. But in any structure, you know, I mentioned, and, and Jared, you, you, you summarize it really well, which is, you, know, you kind of have these tranches, right? Your expected losses, then your next layer, but you, you put a worst case scenario around that through a stop loss. So you do it on an individual claimant basis and an aggregate basis. Most captive structures, group structures should have something similar to that, right? So some of the group structures um, might mean that all the policies on the front side need to look the same. Some have flexibility in that. You just take a certain retention in the captive. There should always be some kind of stop loss around it, whether it's you know, 120% of expected losses or something along those lines, but there should be something there. So when you're setting up a captive from your team's perspective, what type of underwriter do you do or what type of process is going into that to make sure that the risk is appropriate to engage in either a single parent or a group captive? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because what I'm going to say is I rely on you to do that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no in, in reality, it's, it's a partnership, right? Sure. With, with the, the, the benefits and brokerage uh, team benefits consultant uh, brokerage team to determine what the right point is and, and the right structure for the organization. So I'll tell you, um, you're just kind of kind of taking a big step back and saying, doing sort of that preliminary review. If, if an organization comes to me, I say, okay, what's the structure? What do you, what's your, what are you buying your stop loss at? That's on the per claimant side, right? Um, and it's, it's, it's looking at that stop loss and saying, how much have you been paying each year? for stop loss premium and what have your recoveries been? And if I look at that and I say, uh, you know, you, you, you've been paying $500,000 a year and on average your recoveries have been 450,000, but keep doing it, just keep doing it because $50,000 of potential savings, which you're gonna incur costs too, but let's, let's just assume it's pure savings, um, it's not worth it. But if we look at it and we say, okay, you've been paying you know a million dollars and your average claims have been 200,000, yeah, there's opportunity there. We want to capture the 200000 and part of that profit that the carrier is getting. We're willing to take some volatility, but we want to cap the volatility. And that's where some of the, the conversation comes back to um, an organization's risk tolerance and risk appetite, which is not limited to medical stop loss. It's to all risk. Is If we can save you potentially $300,000 a year and, and your, your additional losses could be up to $500,000 a year. That's a pretty good trade-off, right? Because we're not going to get to the 500,000 every year. If we get the 500,000 additional losses once every five years, but we save 300,000 a year for four, it's 1.2 savings versus 500,000 in loss. Yeah, I think I want. 
I, I, I kind of realized that I, I hadn't actually answered your question, Derek, <laughs> um, which is on the on the underwriting. Um, so from my standpoint, what we're looking at is from that financial equation. And then we're, we're working with with you guys to go through and determine does should this company move in this direction? Should this client move in this direction? Um, and or what's the best structure that they move to? Which from a Brown and Brown Hayes perspective, and Adam, I'll let you get your question in a second. But from a Brown and Brown Hayes perspective, we have a team of underwriters and actuaries on that work with each of our clients. So that way we can help do that underwriting. Our teams would collaborate together. We would say, here's expected losses. Here's expected claims. Here's historical. Let's put together the right underwriting to make this make sense. Yeah. And, and I, I could say this, and since, you know, Beecher joined the Brown and Brown family in 2013, we've, we've integrated so well, everything moves incredibly smooth between those teams. Well, I think the finances have to make sense, right? You have to look at this to the small savings. Potentially, you might say no way, and then the math might really work out in your favor. I kind of flipped that to your point of, of maybe more of a guaranteed cost program moving into a self-funded platform. If you're taking somebody that's never done that before, uh, that particular jump might scare people. They just don't know what that looks like. How do I, how do I get an experience report? How do I look at claims data that I've never received? Uh, and I'm just curious if that can't say fear, but I think this is where your expertise comes back into what that next level of education of support is, uh, of, of not just now going from a stop loss platform where you have that direct remittance of payments or reimbursements, but then integrating uh, your team, uh, just kind of educating those that might not have gone through that next level of, of layers of, of what the day-to-day might look like. Um, what, what kind of, what does that integration look like with your team from education and support and just kind of that daily or weekly or monthly process to manage that captive? So I'm just going to say, Adam, I, I kind of like Jared's questions better because it's sort of, <laughs> here's the question and answer it. And there's like 18 things I need to unpack it when you do that. What do you do? What do you do when you, you hire a captive? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, so uh, there, there's, there's a lot of pieces to it. And, and when you think, you know, one of the things I want to really hit on is you mentioned going from guarantee cost to, to potentially taking on risk, right? And, you know, when you do that, when you move from a guarantee cost program to self-funded, your, your attachment points can be 25,000, you know, 20, 25,000 per claimant, which that could be a big number if you have some sort of a frequency event. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with you. And for, for a larger organization, there's far more credibility to those numbers from an actuarial standpoint, right? Like if you have, you know, 7,000 enrolled persons, then you can probably actually predict that out to a, a less than 5% volatility on that layer. So that works. Um, but if you have, you know, 300 employees or 300 enrolled persons, mm-hmm. you don't have actual credibility. So, so, you know, a couple additional claims at that lowest in that retention can really start to add up. So this is where we have to kind of work through the process of, um, you know, does it make sense to move to, a captive structure in a single parent structure, or do we look at a group structure which can help control or mitigate some of that? Again, when we look at some of the group structures, there's some good ones out there. There's some some more that are that are a bit more challenging. Uh, there's some that have more of a capital requirement up front. There's some that are a bit more efficient on the capital side up front. Um, and then it's how are the losses capped, right? What kind, what kind of protections exist? So we have to look through all that. Um, so we, we go through all that process to find the right structure, right? Let's say we're setting up a captive or we're entering into a group captive. We, we, we move beyond that on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, there's interactions with, with reporting or results, 
uh, on a monthly and or quarterly basis. So there's ongoing reporting uh, and, and you know, the captive manager is going to handle all the regulatory requirements and all that sort of stuff too. So I, I'm an 800 life employer. I have 800 employees on my plan. We're spending on average about eight to $10 million a year. Um, our claims are pretty well managed because we're following some great strategies because we have a great benefits broker and things <laughs> are going well. Yeah. Would a captive possibly make sense to me? When I guess what my question is, when does it make sense to start to evaluate a, a captive? Because, I mean, you have employers, I'm sure, of all varying sizes that come and say, hey, Pete, do a captive analysis for us. Yeah, um, that's true. If, if we're under, and, and there's no hard and fast rule, it depends. And really the first part is going to go back to it. That's a safe answer, by the way. That's <laughs> very safe answer. It depends. <laughs> That's right. Everything I do is going to, here's my disclaimer. Now I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> um, but really, so, so it, it, the first thing I want to do is show me your stop loss results, right? Because that's going to be that first equation is I, I don't care if it's 300 lives or 3000 lives. If, if we're looking at a possible 50, 75 or $100,000 savings, right? Is that enough to make a difference? So there's that first preliminary look. And, um, you know, I've said this for many, many years, and I've said uh, just in the past two years in the captive side, I've said no far more than I said yes, just because it didn't make sense, right? Is when you do a captive, you're incurring additional costs there too. You know, there's captive, you have to pay me to manage it. We have to get an audit. We have to do extra, all this other stuff. So the first question is, for whatever I'm paying a carrier, is there enough potential profit that I can capture? that makes any additional risk worth it. It's the risk tolerance, risk appetite question. So there isn't necessarily a size that, that, that factors into it. However, if you're below 500 lives, it's far less likely that even the stop loss premium itself is high enough, is enough of a spend to make it worth, worthwhile. Does that make sense? It, it's kind of, it, you know, in the captive world, we have this, this term is once you've seen one captive, you've seen one captive. And I kind of like to take that approach with, with any potential or people that are interested in the captive because I don't want to just whole, wholesale say, no, you're too small. You know, as we shouldn't do that. Is, is we're a solutions-based firm, right? We're, we're not here to sell a product. We're here to, tr to work with our client and try to find the best solution. So even if it's a 300 life, let's look at it and see what it says. One of the challenges now, and this kind of goes back to, to your previous question, is mm -hmm. uh, can you get data if you're in a fully guaranteed cost program? And that can be a challenge. So step one might be renegotiating that on renewal so that you can start capturing data so that you can understand sort of how your losses line up to your premiums in a guaranteed cost program. And then moving from there after a few years and saying, okay, should we retain more risk or, or how should we do this? Do you find that the captive uh, drives towards more industry-based or to the, maybe to your, your comment right now, it's really agnostic, meaning we don't have to pigeonhole it. It can be, it can be anywhere. Um, and or just do you find that it finds itself more in a certain type of industry, white collar, blue collar, uh, or, or just certain unique group of businesses? Yeah. So I'd say broadly speaking for captives, it's agnostic with respect to industries. Right. When we start thinking about medical, right, if you're in a guaranteed cost program, you're kind of paying a standard rate. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a if you're in a more of a white collar type of business where your claims typically are lower. Now, keep in mind. Um, you know, there, there can be an issue with, with a birth, regardless of industry, you know, there could be a, a cancer diagnosis and I, I don't mean to get uh, negative here, but those things can happen regardless. And that's the volatility part, 
So that's the part we're trying to protect. But typically in, in you know, a white collar job, and this is probably a little more evident, say, workers' comp, mm-hmm. right? You're going to have far lower uh, incidence of claims in a white collar job than you would a blue collar job for, from that perspective. But I think to, to some degree that, that applies a little bit to, to the medical as well. Hmm. So I'm a smaller mid-market employer. I have, again, running really well. My plan's been running well, but maybe 300 employees. Jared, we need to work on your job stability. You went from 800. Big, you, you just had a, you shrunk from 800. I know, I know, I know. I, I'm, I'm all over the place. Was that a COVID um, issue or, I mean, should we talk about it? Do you need a hug or, or where are we at? <laughs> so we're, we're growing. We're going to come back out of COVID. We'll okay. be back after that 800 employees soon. Just give me some time. Give me some time. Um, but a group captive situation. Um, what, what I'm getting at is smaller employers, would you look towards or recommend more where there's not as much premium dollars in that stop loss, would a group cap to be something that you may recommend at that point? Yeah, I think it goes back to to that first thing is, can we get data? Because if, if you're in a guaranteed cost program and your losses are running at 105% of premium, keep doing it because you're, you're, give, you know, they're, you're, you're giving $100 and they're paying 105 that's a that's a win. You're actually getting a rate of return on that. Um, so it's 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 getting that first understanding, right? And and then if we look and we say, um, you know, we're we're paying a hundred dollars, but our claims are fifty. Well, there's profit there, so we should probably try to set something up that allows us to capture that profit. A pure captive, we're probably too small. The dollars just don't work. Um, so going into a group structure might be a better option. So then it's a matter of finding the right group structure, looking at you know, what are the upfront capital requirements? Uh, what does the structure look like? You know, how much risk do I have to retain? And can I get an aggregate on that, that retention mm-hmm. um, just in the working layer? And then in the captive structure, what is that going to look like and what am I exposed to? Um, so it's, again, it's, it's going to come to, it's looking at sort of what the proposals are and, and working through and saying, okay, add expected, you know, this, this is my capital requirement. This is my expected profit over the current structure. Uh, what's my rate of return on that? Am I comfortable with it? So it's kind of, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's not, you know, you're, you're at 300 employees. I'm not going to say, oh, do X. And if somebody tells you do X, then you're, you, it kind of misses the whole equation because um, there's a process. There's a consultative process to help find the right solution. And I, I don't want to say there's a defined process, but to a large degree, there's you know there's sort of steps that you've got to go through. If you don't understand your claims to start, do we really want to start taking on risk? Sure, sure. So what you're saying is if somebody comes to me and says, you know what, without any data, I can save you 15% or more on your car insurance. You're thinking <laughs> there's something something a little fishy there. Yeah. I <laughs> your stop loss insurance. I said car insurance. But you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's that's exactly right, right? One too many Geico ads right there. If you don't have any data, how do you know? Yeah. There's no way to know. Because as you as you're very well aware, that that happens all the time. I mean, there's there's these people out there and they're coming into different employers and there's they see no data and they're promising, we haven't seen your data, but I'm sure I can save you fifteen percent or twenty percent or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I, lo- I love how you say data is king and data is what's really going to drive the direction of the conversation. It is. It is. And uh, you know, to, to, to that point, I mean, I think there's an, enough sophistication in buyers, right, in the, the risk management. I think the risk, uh, the risk management world and even the HR world have been getting more exposed to the financial side of things. 
that they understand that or they're understanding that more. I mean, typically you have people in risk management that may not necessarily come from a financial background, they come from an insurance background, right? So you need to introduce that, those financial concepts to them. And I think what we've seen because of completely outside the medical stop loss world, because of the hardening insurance market and all these other things and the, the premium increases is the, the folks in HR, folks in risk management have been forced to look at the numbers more, right? To understand that. Um, and I, so now if somebody comes in and says, well, I can save you 15%, haven't even looked at your data. We're talking about smart people out there, right? They, they can stop and say, that doesn't make sense. Okay. Now go to your consultative broker and say, let's look at other options. Well, I guess to wrap in your first comment of what is a captive really defining and building your own insurance product in the tail end of a pandemic where the market maybe is a bit questionable and maybe people are pricing for the future. It seems like now is the time where you're probably busier than ever. Is that fair to say where you've got more people asking to review because of the unknown and maybe creating more opportunities that aren't there? Yeah, I, I, I would say that from from a couple different perspectives. So I'm going to make just sort of a broad industry comment, right? So 2019, uh, 2018, 2019, we started seeing, particularly in the real estate world. So there was some, there was a few windstorm, bad fire years. There was like three of those in a row. Um, so what happened is the insurance companies. So year one happens and they have these bad losses. So they have to replenish their surplus somehow. So they typically have some redundant reserves on their books that they can release, which flows through the income statement, helps boost up their reserves. The other thing they have is, um, they look to the markets for capital injection. Okay, so that happens year one. Well, then you have year two of bad fires or bad windstorms. You don't have as much reserve to release. Uh, capital markets are a bit bit sketchier. So now you start looking at premium increases. Year three comes along, no capital to come in. You can't release reserves. You've got to go for rate increases. And that sort of pushes us into a hard market focused on the real estate world. Started with property, started with GL, then the line, those lines expanded to other industries and then expanded to other lines and it's covered pretty much everything. Uh, so we've been busy from the captive world reacting to a lot of this stuff. What we've seen more of late because of exactly what you said, the pandemic, is we're starting to look and say, are there costs we don't know about? So we're seeing that get built in. So on the medical stop loss side in particular, we're definitely starting to see a lot more activity. So that's my long-winded response to your easy question. <laughs> and is I mean for the future then does that define in your opinion that um that that tumultuous market is that going to continue as as much as we can see it where um your outlook or your magic eight ball for the future does it uh grow in any way are we are we expecting anything on the horizon uh what does that look like from the future into 2022 so is this where we insert my automatic disclaimer right yeah it's this is like we're on the coughing appliance podcast where there's no uh tax or legal advice given no tax no tax advice <laughs> He took the uh, CPA hat off, okay? He's, he's not. So, you know, what, what, what have we seen? We've been seeing a trending down of increases, right? So, and, and I don't think it's been a significant trend. And this is me not being on the brokerage side. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the, what I'm hearing in the world um, is, is we're seeing a little bit of a trending down in the pricing increases. So I, I don't think we're necessarily out of the woods. We have one bad year. And it's just going to perpetuate this even further. So I think we're still like two years in it, two years to go. Mm -hmm. um, but it's fundamentally, this, this hard market, I think it's fundamentally changing how insurance is purchased. Because what, you know, as we were talking about, um, you know, the, the pricing increases, what the result of that is, 
is I, as an organization, don't want to pay a 40% or 60% or 80% premium increase. So I increase my retentions. So we've seen, and we've talked about significant increase in the captive industry because people take on more risk. They look for how to finance in that and they, and they go into captives. But what it's doing is it's, it's essentially changing the market in that there's going to be far less risk transfer at, in the working layers. So more organizations are being forced to take on risk. Once you take on some risk, you start to get comfortable with it because you start to dive into it, get more data around all of your risk, right? And then you become more comfortable with other lines. So then you start increasing your risk retention. Well, the future of where risk is going is it's going more into multi-line integrated aggregates uh, where you bundle a bunch of lines of business in a captive. Stop loss is a good one to include in that medical stop loss, but you bundle it in a captive and then you transfer your risk that way. So it's fundamentally changing how we, how we finance risk. Just in a, an incredible topic. It's one of those that you can take so many different directions. And I think we in 30 minutes here have challenged the brain a little bit to go uh, beyond that traditional insurance product to what the future holds with, uh, well, with the person that I'm just so glad he's on our team, frankly, to guide us through that really tumultuous time. So, um, Pete, we just want to say thank you from uh, our team to you. This has been really educational, but the conversation for sure doesn't have to stop here. Uh, and, and definitely, if you need to dive into captives more and get into what that means for your organization, reach out uh, to your consulting team and, and, and look forward to engaging in future conversations. So, Pete, again, thank you. Uh, hope you have a, an amazing rest of the day. Um, keep captivating yourself. That's a bad joke. That's one of those That's bad jokes. Horrible. That yeah, was that, a reach for a yeah. bad joke. <laughs> yeah, leave, leave this in there, but I'm going to say cut and re-record. Right? <laughs> no, Pete, we, we appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. Besides the poor finish, we'll leave it there and wish everybody uh, a great day, and we'll see you on the next Benefits Breakdown. Thanks for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. This episode, in combination with our previous episode titled Managing the Ever-Changing World of Employee Leave Management, is eligible for one SHRM credit. The code for SHRM credit is 22RTQ95. That's 22-R as in Romeo, T as in Tango, Q as in Quebec, 95. Remember, this code expires after December 31st of 2022. Thanks again for listening, and please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and be sure to tune in to our next episode.